Hey, TCA fans. My name is Sarah Britsky, and I'm your host for TCAU. I'm so glad today to have here with me Chris Hemmelman. He is the lead pastor at First City Church in Bellevue, Nebraska, but he is by trade an English teacher. And so that's why this fall we had Chris speak at this year's back to school co-teacher training for parents and staff. Um, What I love about Chris is that he has a great heart for Jesus, um, but he also sees how that connects to um, students knowing about God in all of their studies. He sees how a Christian education goes along with a classical education. So this year we're studying the modern era as a school and to kick us off for the year, Chris gave a talk that used examples from the modern era and Orwell's novel 1984 to show how classical education humanizes us in a culture that's lost our understanding of humanity. So Chris, I'm so glad that you're here today to share the content of your talk so that we can listen to it once again and be inspired. Well, thanks, Sarah. Uh, It's definitely a privilege to be able to share some thoughts on this podcast. Uh, So what I want to talk about is the topic of the humanizing power of classical education. So during my years teaching high school, there was always this inevitable moment, uh, usually fairly early in the year, where I'd get this question. Mr. Hemmelman, why do we need to learn this? That that question sound familiar? Uh, How many of you have heard that question? Maybe you are the kid who asked your teacher that question. There's an interesting assumption uh, in the question that education should primarily be about practical, useful information. Uh, If the information isn't useful to me in a practical sense, namely uh, useful for helping me achieve my career goals, then why should I be forced to learn it? And, and listen, this wasn't just some students trying to get out of reading Beowulf, like such an understanding of education is really embedded into our very culture and it's been handed down to us. And so the students were in many ways expressing the way that they had been formed to think about education. And this mindset towards education actually comes from the period that you all are studying this year, the, the modern period. Now, trying to boil down a period in in history to a single idea, it's really like flirting with foolishness. But I want to suggest to you that if if we were to summarize the impact and influence of all the important moments and movements of the modern period, whether industrialization or imperialism or westward expansion, World War One, Great Depression, World War Two, all the various political revolutions and the technological revolution, the defining characteristic of the modern period is how it fundamentally changed our understanding of what it means to be human. Namely, that that our understanding of of what it means to be human went from being a God-given, spiritually transcendent understanding that that we receive to a more self-discovered, if not outright self-given understanding that, that we actually create. So untethered from the divine, the the modern world no longer looked to or needed God to understand what it meant to be human. Uh, We were perfectly capable of understanding and creating that on our own. Uh, Advances in industrialization and technology and medicine and transportation, I mean, they gave us a increasingly godlike control over our world and Darwinian evolution explained our origins apart from God and Freudian psychology explained what ailed us apart from sin and social scientists told us what made society work best apart from the messy matter of biblical morality and and hey why would we need Jesus to come back because we have liberal democracy and we have globalization that'll bring us the the hope of world peace and unity or maybe nationalism or fascism or marxism or socialism or communism would do that if that's more your fancy. Uh, now there's, there's much to celebrate 
and the advancements in the modern world. Like the time period that gave us jazz cannot be all that bad. <laughs> uh, we should have a, a big view of common grace that, that all truth is God's truth. But we also have to recognize that there was a trajectory that was set and that impact is still felt today. And now what does that have to do with education? How does all of that connect to, to education? Well, in untethering from the divine, we also untethered ourselves from universal truth and transcendent morality. And this did more than just make us moral relativists who, who live our truth. Uh, it removed moral formation from the center of education. See, foundational to the classical Christian approach to education is the belief that the human beings, men and women, boys and girls, are spiritual and moral beings living in a world divinely ordered by universal truth and morality. Uh, we're designed to know and to live by the true, the good, and the beautiful. And uh, the telos, the end of classical education was the holistic formation of the person. And so, yeah, students developed important life and career skills, but even more, they developed as people. They were formed in religious, moral, and civic virtue. Being good at particular skills really matter little if we're not first good people and good being defined by divine universal truth. And modernism changed the game. In the modern perspective, humans are not fundamentally spiritual and moral beings living in a morally ordered universe. Rather, we are the products of evolutionary progress or highly evolved animals capable of mastery over the natural world through scientific discovery and technological advancement. And so morality is not divinely given, but societally constructed from what we believe will promote the most human progress. And so the telos that the end of education from this perspective is not the formation of character, but the formation of technique. What type of person I am really is secondary to what I can accomplish through the accumulation of knowledge and skill sets. And such a perspective of education, it really permeated society and still shapes the prevailing narrative of education today. Is it no wonder my students ask the question, why do we need to know this? They had been formed to see that the telos, the end of education, was the accumulation of what is useful for mastering the world. And really one of the ironies here is that in emphasizing technique, modern education hasn't made us any more skilled, at least not in the things that matter. So I recently listened to a podcast interview with Dr. Clifford Humphrey. Uh, he's the director of the Institute of Leadership Development at Troy University. And Dr. Humphrey has a PhD in political statesmanship from Hillsdale College, and he teaches uh, moral philosophy. Uh, in the podcast, he, he noted that over the past 150 years or so, we've been inundated with books on leadership and we have classes and we have seminars, we have leadership theories, we have best practices. I mean, we have techniques coming out of our ears and yet for all of our technique and expertise, we're not producing leaders like George Washington or Winston Churchill, or if you want to go back further, Joan of Arc or Charlemagne. And so how is it that in the past, when we didn't have all this focus on technique and we didn't have all this data and best practices, society produced great leaders. But today, with all of our expertise, we really don't. Uh, so Dr. Humphrey points out, it's because we miss the essence of leadership. It's not so much technique, but it's moral character and moral vision. 
So as an example, if we're looking at just a technique for accomplishing goals, George Washington was, was an average military leader at best. Like if you're familiar with his military record, he made quite a few blunders and lost plenty of battles in his career. There were other revolutionary generals who were actually better tacticians on the battlefield. And yet he led a successful military campaign against one of the most powerful military forces in the world, not through the brilliance of his technique, but through the strength of his character, his strong presence and courage held together an army that was often on the brink of giving up. And so this is not to say technique is not important, but if it comes down to the person with the most skill and no character and the person with little skill and great character, history's money is on the person of character every time. So of course, uh, no matter what the modern mindset tells us, we are spiritual and moral beings. Uh, the modern approach to education really has been its own type of moral formation. We never scrubbed formation from education because we cannot escape it. We have all been and are all being formed into a particular type of person. So the question is, who are we becoming? What type of person, what type of people is our culture and our education forming us into? So what do we see today? Well, sadly, by redefining what it means to be human, modernism has had a dehumanizing effect on us. Like human value and worth are no longer seen as inherent because we're made in the image of God, but they're found in utility and performance. We're starved for virtue. Meaning is no longer given through universal truth, but it's constructed through things like self-fulfillment. And this has made us spiritually and emotionally shallow. Well, we have become men without chests in the words of C.S. Lewis. Or as T.S. Eliot poetically put it, we are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rats' feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. And, and really, in what is perhaps the, the ultimate logical end of modernism, we now see our bodies no longer as the ground of our humanity, but like the rest of the natural world, things that we can reconstruct and manipulate as we see fit. And this is the societal air we breathe. The formation our culture imposes upon us each and every day. And it's really heartbreaking to see the damage it's doing, especially to the generation of students in your care. You all are aware of the epidemic of mental health struggles and depression and anxiety and loneliness facing our kids. The tragic irony is modernism and its fruit offered us a new, better way of being human, but has left us more broken and unsure of ourselves than ever before, rebelling against and even hating our humanity. So right now you'd be thinking, man, why did they let this dude on the podcast? <laughs> He's, this is such a downer. And so, yes. Uh, uh, hitting you with some heavy stuff. But, but I do so first just to be honest about where we are and acknowledge, look, this is hard. A classical education, it, it's a challenge under any circumstance, but you all are choosing to walk upstream through a very powerful current. Uh, the resistance you feel is real, and, and this is the reason why. But I also, I wanna point to the difficulty 
and, and really the pain, not to wallow in despair, really. I don't want to instill fear in you, but I want to say we have an incredible opportunity here in a culture that's wrecking and ruining by dehumanizing. What an opportunity to shine the light of truth. Really, what an opportunity to cultivate goodness. What an opportunity to drink deeply of beauty. And what an opportunity for the gospel renewal as we humanize ourselves and our students. And so parents and co-teachers, the work in front of you, it is challenging for sure, but it is glorious. Though there is darkness, the light of the power of what you are doing will shine all the brighter. And so I want to, I want to give you that hope. I want to encourage you even in the midst of the challenge, even in the midst of the culture that you are educating in and, and in many ways trying to fight against, you have a beautiful opportunity and a beautiful call. And so there's, there, there's really much that I could say about how you do this, but let me, let me try to give you just a little bit of taste uh, of, of a, a model, maybe if you will, of how to humanize your students through a short lesson on the novel 1984. So, so I'm guessing most of you are familiar with the general plot of 1984, uh, even if you've, you've really never read the whole novel. Uh, so it was written in 1949 by Englishman George Orwell, which was the pseudonym of Eric Blair. Uh, 1984 is one of several sort of futuristic dystopian novels that were written in the modern era. Uh, another of the, the major ones written uh, that you may be familiar with is Brave New World, uh, which was written in 1932. And so 1984 tells the story of Winston Smith and his struggle to break free from Big Brother and, and the totalitarian state that imposes control on society physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually and morally. Orwell wrote 1984 really as a satire of the totalitarianism of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. And he was trying to warn the people of the West that, that they had were becoming too comfortable with totalitarianism. They were being too naive to believe that it, it couldn't spread past Germany and past the Soviet Union, that, that it, that there were in fact, some countries that were adopting some similar practices by, uh, propaganda and restricting free speech and really manipulating the media. And so if you read the novel today, it, in some ways it feels more relevant than ever. In the book, there, there's a strong cult of personality around a central political leader. There's this continual surveillance and policing of speech and manipulation of language and data for political ends, control of the media, the threat of punishment for thinking the wrong things. Any of that sound familiar? <laughs> Uh, in the novel, there were these things called telescreens, which were these wall-mounted screens that served to pump non-stop sound and information, as well as a way to continually monitor, pe monitor people's activity. So our screens aren't so much mounted on our walls, but as carried in our pockets. So 1984 is regularly cited as this brilliant insight into totalitarian tactics. And, and really, it is. It is. However, to read the novel just at the level of how a totalitarian government seeks to control, to read the novel just at the level of tactics is to miss the deeper point. Uh, social psychologist Eric Fromm points this out about the novel, that the fundamental question of 1984 is this, can human nature be changed in such a way that man will forget his longing for freedom, for dignity, for integrity, for love. That is to say, can man forget that he is human? 
So really more than a satire and warning against totalitarianism. 1984 is a fundamental challenge to modernity's attempt to change human nature. So for example, one of the novel's more chilling scenes is the regular practice of two minutes hate in which ever, every member of the party spends two minutes angrily screaming obscenities at the picture of the political adversary of Big Brother. So think of it like the angry comment section under a social media post, but everyone's actually in the room together. So explained, and, and, and this practice is explained as an extension of love for Big Brother, but the formation is actually the inverse. It's formation not of love, but of hate. It is the normalizing of hate. It is the promotion of hate as sort of the forward-facing human emotion that defines human character. And closely associated with this is fear. They were taught to fear the enemy. They were taught to fear violating Big Brother's directives. Now, if we consider the problems of the novel at the level of tactics as a warning against the methods of government control, then we leave the deeper truth untouched. What does it do to our humanity when we center hate and fear because of how useful they are as tactics? So let's for a moment replace the totalitarianism of Big Brother with the liberal democracy of the US or, uh, or the liberal democracy that we see in the broader Western civilization. If we're defending a form of government that we believe is to be good, why not? put pictures of dictators and socialists and communists and, or big government liberals or right-wing extremists up on screens and just hate away. If it works in creating opposition against those who should be opposed, why not do this? And, and does this not sound familiar, familiar, this emphasis on hating opposition? But what does that do to our humanity? Well, hate and fear, they shut down our capacity for relationships they shut down our capacity for love and service and sacrifice. They shut down our capacity for hope and shut down our capacity for civic unity in a diverse society. And so when we dis disregard character formation in place of mere tactic, when we seek to fundamentally alter human nature by untethering character from the true and the good and the beautiful, we shut down the character, we shut down capacities for, for what truly brings for flourishing. And so classical education works to form character. It considers things past tactics and it works to humanize us by teaching us to consider how our techniques actually shape us. Do our techniques humanize us? Do they form us in the true good and beautiful or are they doing something else? Let me give you another brief example. Within the culture of the novel, desire was suppressed. There was to be no longing, no desiring for anything good or true or beautiful. There, there is only conformity and consumption of what Big Brother gives you. And so at one point, Winston gains insight into the danger of the, the danger desire would be to the party. The moment people start longing and desiring, and, and that desire grew too strong, it would tear the party to pieces. And so there's this moment where he just wished that he could just experience desire and just fulfill every desire. And if society did that, the party would be overthrown and freedom would reign. Now, if repression of desire is a tactic of a totalitarianism, why would we not let desire just run unhindered? Why not give people absolute freedom, access to every desire and pleasure in order to be happy and fulfilled? 
Again, does this not sound familiar? Does not our society champion freedom by telling us to chase every desire? But what does that do to our humanity when desire is not properly ordered? And so this is the irony in it, that that repression of desire and unfettered desire, they're two sides of the same coin. They both reduce us to consumers who can never get enough, which creates this emptiness in us. Work, but no purpose. Indulgence, but no delight. Connection, but no communion. Pleasure, but no joy. Amusement, but no rest. Expectations, but no hope. And so again, we see when we disregard character formation and only talk about things at the level of tactic, when we seek to fundamentally alter human nature by untethering character from the true, the good, and the beautiful, what do we do? We shut down the capacity for what truly brings flourishing. So what do I want you to take away from this short lesson in 1984? Here is your work as parents and classical educators, the humanizing of young souls who live in an increasingly dehumanizing culture. And so yes, teach students so they get good grades, they progress through school, they graduate, they go to college, they get a degree, and they get a good job. That's all well and good. But your teaching is so much bigger than that. You are engaging in the important, powerful, beautiful work of moral formation. As you study great works of literature and art, as you study history, you show your students there is such a thing as the good, the true, and the beautiful. You bring them into contact with these things so they can be shaped by them, that their humanity is elevated, their souls are deepened, and their character is ennobled. As you study the wonders of science and mathematics, you show the beautiful order and design of our universe. And look, this is not just so they can win debates with atheists but to show the power and creative heart of our God, to show that we as humans have value and purpose, not because we can produce, but because we are made in the image of God, that our bodies are not mere machines, but gifts to us that we steward through and through which we experience the fullness of meaning and purpose. This is why you teach. This is what you're after as educators and as parents. And what's more, as we seek to humanize ourselves and our students, as we seek to be shaped by the true and the good and the beautiful, here's where it will ultimately lead us. It will ultimately lead us to Christ, the one who is the fullness and perfection of humanity, the one who through his life, death, and resurrection rescues and redeems us from our fallen, broken, and sinful humanity. His life, our life, his goodness and righteousness, our goodness and righteousness, his resurrection life, our resurrection life, and the glory and the beauty of new creation when he returns, that's our great hope. This is why you ultimately teach character, goodness, truth, beauty, hope, to live in the good of our humanity for all of our sin and brokenness as we eagerly wait for our king. And what's more, in a culture that is increasingly dehumanizing us, what an opportunity to shine the light of truth all the modern attempts to redefine our humanity, listen, they're gonna come crashing down eventually. You can only deny reality for so long. And so what an opportunity as we humanize ourselves and our kids to be, in a, to be a place of refuge and reformation for those that have been damaged by our world. The work you do is not just for you and your students, but to point the world to hope. So when your students ask, why do we need to learn this? 
Tell them, we are learning what it means to be human. We are learning to live as those made in the image of God, as those who live for his goodness, truth, and beauty. And we are learning what it means to be human so we can shine the light of God's goodness and grace to a world wrecked and ruined by sin. It's no small thing that you all do. And so God bless you and your work this year.